One of the definitive pictures of God is that this the simple statement in John that God is love. Um, if we would define love then in terms of God, we would say that God is communion. God is communication. If Trinitarian love then, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are defined by that communion, by that communication, and that then is the picture of ultimate reality, it could be understood how a primordial lie would constitute a counter system, the counter system of sin. And that's what we have in the picture of Genesis, the lie, you know, of Satan, Genesis 3, 4, you won't die, you'll be like gods. It's the picture that Jesus gives when he encounters the Pharisees. He says, you're liars. You follow your father who is, his native tongue is lying and deception. Sin is pictured as a kind of entry into a deception, a covenant with death. In the early church, Irenaeus pictured, uh, you know, the work of Christ as to defeat the deception of the devil that has been foisted upon us. So, where do we see the effect of the lie? In other words, how do we know that we're in it? How do we know that uh, it's sort of like if you've seen the movie The Matrix, you know, the people in The Matrix, they don't know they're in The Matrix. They don't know that they're in this virtual world. Or when you're dreaming, how do you know that you're in a dream? A key part of Paul's description of sin is that the deception works in our understanding. It works in our action, our will. In regard to apprehending or being able to carry out the law or being able to carry out any action, in fact. I do what I do not want to do, and what I want to do, I cannot do. So there is an incapacity within us, which is connected to our incapacity to follow through from our thoughts and words to our actions. In Paul's picture, we have been deceived, or in fact, to state it specifically, we are self-deceived. And this deception produces alienation, alienation from God and neighbor and alienation within ourselves. And with this, there comes an incapacity, a weakness. We've seemed to have chosen a word, an empty word that in Genesis is described as the knowledge of good and evil, a word of death. You won't die. You'll be like God's. If you picture Adam, you know, in the beginning, he was almost like a co-creator with God. He names the animals, and as he named them, so they were called. Uh, His power of language is directly, you know, directly pertaining to creation, directly connected to reality, so that the sign, the name, and what he's signifying were connected This is the way that God uses language. God speaks in creation. And it happens. Let there be light. And there was light. Adam named and they were so called. 
So that the human, the original human capacity for language was one on the order of God himself in which sign and signified were connected. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, Saint Disgusting, as CJ likes to call him, refers to it, refers to the, the tree as a circulating system of signs. Uh, that it is a self-referential, you know, the, the good refers to the evil, the evil refers to the good. When Adam takes up the tree, uh, the fruit of the tree, he becomes self-referential. I ran, I hid, I was afraid, I was naked. He seems to be stuck on his eye, on himself. Occasionally in our life, we speak a word with real performative power. A word which accomplishes something. I do. There's a powerful word. Here the word and the action are potentially bound together. So that we know that there is a use of language that is performative, that actually carries out the intent. And I think that's what Paul is taking us to in between Romans 7 and 8. An empty word that refers to nothing and no one, and then the fullness of the word that we have in the Holy Spirit. Maybe the most empty phrase that was ever uttered. I think, therefore I am. In which we imagine we can know ourselves into existence and reality. Maybe it's, I think, and therefore I am not. In that I cannot get a handle on myself through my thought. As Paul describes it in Romans 7, there is an alienation, an alien force which has taken up residence within us. The way the writer in Genesis portrays it, that we would know, we would have our epistemology, our knowing, and this would establish our being. Uh, that's the lie of Satan. You'll know and you'll be like God. You won't die. I am that I am, is the way the king of Tyre puts it, or as a recent preacher puts it, I am wonderful. I am smart. I am healthy. Um, the choice of thought and knowing autonomously is at the expense, in fact, of being. The entry into knowing as the basis of our being entails the departure into a deception, into the fiction of the knowledge of good and evil, a circulating system of signs. The law of sin and death is the way the New Testament will describe it. A world built on the power of human words and language at Babel. Isn't this the picture of the contrast between Babel, a world that people would construct, fabricate, unite themselves, uh, and then that world that is in fact undone by God confusing their language, by uh, God striking, you know, the heart of the system wasn't the tower, but it was their empty words that they kind of used as a fabrication to bring them together. 
And then at Pentecost, we have a word from God in which the Holy Spirit is given. You know, the the miraculous tongues, which are a sign of the gift of the Spirit. And there is a world then that is no longer built on the power of man, but a kingdom of people and a new way of being that is built on the word of God. So wherein the law of sin and death, the knowledge of good and evil, human will or agency is relinquished. We're unable to carry out what we would do. Um, That is a part of the deception. There's a disconnect. Uh, There is, you know, a kind of moment maybe when we pass in the movie The Matrix. um, Neo passes from The Matrix and into the desert of the real. The desert of the real is, oh, he recognizes that the richness and color and fullness that in fact were a virtual world are undone. Maybe in this sense nihilism. The moment when one recognizes that the world that we often project is a kind of empty world, is a kind of darkness. Maybe in this sense we have to pass through a moment of nihilism before we recognize the reality that's been given to us in Christ. We pass through a kind of symbolic destitution. And isn't this what's being pictured in Romans chapter 7? That sin worked through the law to deceive and bring about a death-dealing desire. And in our repentance, we recognize that we then too were subjects of that desire, subjects of that deception. And we need to turn from that and recognize the emptiness that was there. As I talked last week, Paul counters this with the picture of dying and rising with Christ in baptism. There is a real world, an ontological world of difference between the body of death and the new life, the resurrection life that we have in Christ. He describes it as being knit together with Christ or being joined together uh, to his body as a new subject. The subject of death has been joined uh, to death itself, while the subject in Christ has been joined to the reality of God in Christ. This is what I think chapter 8 of Romans is describing, of being in Christ, as Paul says in 8.1, living in the power of the Spirit, as he says in 8.5, belonging to Christ through the Spirit, as he says in 8.9, and living now and in the future in the resurrection power of the Spirit, as he describes in chapter 8, verses 10 to 11. He says that we're adopted through the power of the Spirit as a child of God. We're joined to the love of God through the power of the Spirit. Where the lie of sin is understood as the engine of death, the thing that generates this nothingness in our lives, being joined to God and entering into communion with God through the Spirit is simultaneously the reception of truth and life. The truth in this instance is not an abstraction or a philosophical truth, but it is a life-giving truth which specifically counters the death-dealing lie. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. And there is life in this truth because we have believed the lie. We've been deceived. And that lie is death dealing. The lie takes up suffering and death and alienation as primary. But Paul dismisses the power of death. He says death has been defeated in God's love. And that's where he ends Romans chapter 8. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Neither tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or death itself can separate us from the love of Christ. So where death or something like a death drive is or the orienting factor in chapter 7, Paul sets out in chapter 8 that which trumps death, that which defeats death. The love of God in Christ Jesus by the Spirit. The Spirit then is the theme of salvation as Paul pictures it. The Spirit gives the fullness of life, the truth. You know, what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? Life. What is the, how is it that the truth is brought home to us? It's in and through the Spirit. And with the introduction of the Spirit in Romans 8 2, Paul's question of 7.24, who will rescue me from this body of death, is definitively answered. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. According to Christian tradition, the Holy Spirit is the one who indwells us, who writes God's law on our hearts, who transforms us, into a child of God who bears witness to Christ and leads one into all truth. And I believe that then is a depiction of what Paul is describing as the work of the Spirit in chapter 8. The interior dialectic of chapter 7, the I who does what he, you know, the law of the mind and the law of the flesh are pitted against one another. It is not communion and communication that we see in chapter 7, but in fact discommunion and a failure of communication even between the mind and the body. It is a false communication. It's a lie, it's a deception which is exposed and silenced, I believe. That interior dialogue, that picture of compulsive repetition that picture of the pig returning to the wallow and the dog returning to the vomit, that neurosis that infects all of us that is called sin is undone in the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Spirit is most intimately felt then as we take up the word of Christ and we walk with it. We apply it. In chapter 8, Paul pictures creation and the Creator then as containing an infinite depth of communion and communication and we enter into that communion. In the same way, Paul says, I'm reading here verses 26 to 27. The Spirit also helps our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we should But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is. 
because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The communication, the communion of life in the Spirit through the Son resonates. You know, this is the picture from verse 22. There's creations growing in verse 22. There's the Christians groaning in verse 23. And this is then pictured as an inter-Trinitarian communion in which the Spirit Himself intercedes with, uh, for us with the groanings in verse 26 too deep for words. That is that the communion and uh, communication that we have exceeds our ability to, agra- to grasp it. We could call it the Christian unconscious. For Paul, the unconscious is not constituted as in a chapter 7 or a Freudian framework through repression, deception, but rather it's constituted in a depth of communion and communication. Chapter 7 pictures this dialectic of human interiority as an antagonistic failure in which we're pitted against one another, a failure, a pitted against ourselves even, a failure to communicate. And so Paul depicts the unconscious workings of the Christian heart in quite an opposite way, as an open prayer in which he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The tacit knowledge of the heart participates in a prayerful dialectic within the Trinity. As he says, we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit intercedes for us. Think of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He faces the suffering of the cross, and yet he remains true to his vocation Precisely then, in and through prayer. So too the believer obediently endures suffering. By entry, I believe, and this is the context that Paul is talking about prayer, that it's in the context of facing the realities of suffering. We endure this suffering in our own inter-Trinitarian communication, communion between the Spirit and the Father. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, Paul says, just as he helped Christ Jesus. There is an incapacity within us. But it's precisely this incapacity in this place that God meets us. It's this precise point at which the Spirit intercedes for us. Humility and dependence upon God I believe, are expressed in prayer. And the counter to the primeval pride that was a grab for knowledge, a grab for being apart from God, is undone through the humility of being able to go to God in prayer and confess our sin, to confess our need, to request our daily needs, that we have this dependence upon God that is not a mystical, you know, 
Schweitzerian kind of Schleiermachian kind of dependence but a real world dependence that we express in prayer that is an acknowledgement of the reality of whose Christ is it's the expression of human helplessness ignorance, inarticulateness especially for man who sacrificed his relation to God in other words what we've done We've sacrificed our communion and communication with God for the fruit of knowledge, for pride. Uh, It is that which makes it possible then when we admit our pride and the failure of it in prayer and turn to God. Paul says elsewhere in uh, 2 Corinthians 12.10, For when I am weak, then I am strong. Prayer is completely absent from chapter 7. Along with love and hope and God as Abba, Father, and the relationship of the Holy Spirit. But I think prayer frames the life of the saint in in chapter 28. There is no end of prayer for Paul. He says elsewhere, I am constantly in prayer. I am constantly in communion. I am constantly in communication with God. And so should we be. That our life should be a prayer that is offered up to God as we practice the presence of God in our lives. So prayerful human knowing is linked to an understanding that exceeds our ability to know. It exceeds finite knowledge. And yet it connects us to the ground of truth, which is Christ. The communication of the Spirit through the Son is not only an opening to knowing God, but it also means being known by Him. This was, you know, the mediating uh, role of Christ as high priest is a two-way mediation. This communication, as with any communication, is multidirectional. And thus communal. Uh, Communication in the spirit is a full communion with God. In which knowing has its support. As Paul describes it in being foreknown by God. We know God because he's known us. And in this the understanding is conformed then to the purposes of God. In verse 29. So if God's being is in communicating and communion, the purposes of God's communicating and communing, communion or the sharing, the love the Father has for the Son and the Spirit is the place that we then enter into that communion. Paul pictures believers as those who are caught up in this communicating activity of the love of God as the culmination of the work of the Spirit. All things work together for good to those who are called by God. In, uh, they, in being loved by him, there's no obstacle, Paul says, that can obstruct this love. What this is over and against, what Paul is picturing, I believe in chapter 7 and the resolution he's giving us in chapter 8, is in fact a picture of language of a gap between you know the word the sign and the signified that is just the disease the epidemic whether you work it out 
in a philosophical, metaphysical understanding, or just in a personal, psychological way, in some way human words are empty. They fail to connect up to reality. And so how does this happen? Karl Barth claims that the appropriateness of theological concepts depends upon God's act of raising our words to this their proper use giving God's self to be their proper object and thus giving them their truth that is it's God who raises up our language capacity in Christ Jesus in and of themselves human words and concepts I believe have no capacity for application to God since God cannot fit within the totality of creaturely objects and ideas this does not entail however that concepts cannot be applied to God it entails rather that such application depends completely upon God God makes our words have effect God gives power to our ability to you know, speak and it happened just as he speaks and it happens. Bart writes, what we cannot do of ourselves, God can do through us. If our intuitions, concepts, and words are in themselves too confined to grasp God, it does not follow that a limit is thereby set for God, as if it were impossible for God to take up a dwelling within these confines. That is, it's God who takes our language. Not that language is naturally a kind of analogy of who God is, but rather that God makes our words effective in and through the powerful word, which is Christ Jesus. With Psalms 104, we recognize, it could be said of every living thing, when thou hides thy face, they are dismayed. When thou takest away thy breath, they die and return to dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit and they are created and thou renewest the face of the earth. So too with our words, with our language, that God then through the spirit has made them effective so that the word of Christ is life-giving. Where the death of the eye divides and alienates Life in the Spirit is a communion founded by the Father who has sent His Son who leads by His Spirit. We're picturing inter-Trinitarian communication and communion. That we are co-participants in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Their communion is shared with us through Christ. The Spirit is the source of life who empowers the walk and mindset of those who will be found in Christ. That we're enabled to walk as Christ walked because we have the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit is God's righteousness, Paul says in 8.10, whose resurrection power will give life to your mortal bodies. That resurrection life he's describing in verse 11 is a life that we begin to take up. As by his life, he says in verse 13, you put to death the deeds of the body. And through the spirit adoption of sons, we're enabled to cry, Abba, Father. It's not a genetic link, but it's a spiritual link, which we have to God as his children. And he helps us in weakness and prayer 
by interceding for the saints. So the Trinity is a communion in which and through which the new humanity walks, has their mindset, as he describes in verse 5 to 8, has their sonship, as he says in verse 15, and on this basis are enabled to endure suffering, as he says in verse 17, and they have saving hope. We might say that in this sense, you know, the three persons of the Trinity, that the Holy Spirit is the one who makes the work of Christ effective in our lives. <coughs> Sorry. That the word made flesh was the work of the Spirit in the life of Christ. That the incarnation of Christ was there at the conception of Christ. And as Christ you know, lived his life, the Holy Spirit was with him. So too, as the Word is made incarnate for us, it is in and through the power of the Spirit. It's precisely to this empirical realm, the world of practice, that Paul turns as he describes, you know, the Christians walk in the Spirit, verse 14. Those in Christ meet the requirements of the law. Living according to the Spirit, he says in verse 4. And mortifying killing off the work of the flesh in verse 13. So the body is dead, and by the body he doesn't mean just our physical body. He means that dynamic of sin that he's described in chapter 7. That is dead, that is undone because of the spirit is a counterpower. Uh, the counterpower to death is the power of life in verse 10, he says. So the spirit now gives the righteousness of God or the promise of life indicated in the law's righteous decree. And remember the term righteous here is not simply an imputed or theoretical righteousness. No, in and through the work of the Spirit, we're actually made righteous so that we fulfill uh, the law. Righteousness has been fulfilled within us. And that then is, gives us the capacity, as Paul says, not to walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And it's characterized in all of its phases by the power of life, which enables the mindset of Christ to become our own mindset. I believe we could break this down into a very practical thing, that we are enabled to go on in our lives in a very practical day-to-day sense and be like Christ. Not just that we see who Christ is objectively, But actually we begin to make decisions, we begin to think, we begin uh, to understand in the way that Christ made decisions, in the way that Christ thought. And that's what we see in Christ's relationship to the disciples. That they're enabled to go on in the way of Christ because they then have the the power of the Spirit uh, is enabling them to walk as he walked. So the Spirit for Paul is the one who brings things into effect. He is the effective presence of God. In the words of Balthazar, the Spirit accompanies the entire work of incarnating the Son so that in his humanity can be the Father's word of love. So the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ is the one who enables us to put on the image of Christ. In conclusion, let me, uh, I'm going to say a couple of heavy things here that you normally don't find in a conclusion. But 
Um, in the Greek and Hebrew understanding, there's a very different concept surrounding words. Uh, the Greek notion of logos, as you have it in uh, the philosophical understanding, is that uh, it's a kind of immutable, impersonal realm of discourse. And so when Christ is said to be the logos of God, it's not a Greek understanding that fills that understanding that we have in John, but it's the Hebrew understanding of Debar. That this then is over and against the logos. For the Hebrews, words get their meaning in being expressions of the personal. But the you know sign and the signified, the uh, are joined together so that God's mighty speech acts describe who God is. We can illustrate this perhaps in two very different signs of you know or two ways of understanding baptism. In a typical, you know, evangelical understanding baptism is an outward sign of an inward event the sign and what it signifies are separated and in a sense that characterizes an entire theology in which the signs are all we have just a rotating system of signs that condemns us to never dealing with the realities with the inward event I believe the New Testament picture that Paul gives us, uh, especially in chapter 6, about baptism is what's characteristic of Christianity entirely. The words, the signs, and what they signified are joined together. We can talk about baptism as a sign, but understand that it's a sign in which the meaning is there in what is signified. They're not separated. We can talk about communion in the same way. Is it a sign? Oh yeah, it's a sign. But Christ is really present here among us. And so what it, what it signifies uh, is joined to the sign. So sign and signifier, I think, are to be joined in our lives. So that our words have meaning. Our words are joined to our actions. Not in a Greek sense, but in the Hebrew sense that when God speaks, it happens. So too, when we make promises, when we say things, that they are to be filled then, not with emptiness, but with the fullness of the Spirit. A way of saying this is in Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, to purify our conscience from dead works. As long as our words are empty, our works will be empty too. The writer goes on to say, but we've been cleansed from that. Our conscience, our minds, our unconscious have been cleansed to that so that we serve the living God. We pass from dead works, empty words, to the living reality of the Holy Spirit. Now, unfortunately, we have entire systems of theology. Carl Henry reduced the words of Scripture to propositional content, removing the personal element completely. 
On the other hand, I think Karl Barth takes it too far the other way. He emphasized the fact that God gives him himself in the word, but he tended to deverbalize it. The word is something that God both says and does in us. This is realized for us in the work of the Spirit. So we take up the word of Christ and we begin to walk with it. The conclusion, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with us corresponds to the eternal divine fellowship. In the fellowship of the Spirit, we are linked with the Father and the Son. You know, the prayer of John in John 17, the great high priestly prayer. Father, we pray that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The indwelling that the, you know, the Trinity has is one that we join. The economic Trinity, the work of God in redemption is who God is in the imminent trinity. We understand who God really is in and through the work of redemption. For those whom he foreknew, Paul says, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. And that conforming work is the work of the Spirit as we become co-participants in the communion and communication of the Trinity. Let's sing our hymn of the 